Welcome to Biota.org Interviews. I'm Tom Barbele, and today I have the immense pleasure of chatting with Steve Grand. Steve, it's been a long time coming. I think we've been talking for about four months now in order to get this, this interview recorded. I know, Tom, sorry. I prevaricated as long as I possibly could, but you got me in the end. Yeah, we'll come to all in good time with regards to Biota.org interviews. Spread the word amongst your associates that they will be all tracked down and interviewed. <laughs> and hunted shot. <laughs> hunted down. So, uh, yes. In any case, Steve, there are a wide variety of people that listen to this podcast, and I know a good number of the kind of old artificial life development folk know exactly who you are, but a number of the newer folk probably don't know who Steve Grand is. So for those who are unfamiliar, can you give some introduction to your background and how you got interested in artificial life? Well, I'm an amateur scientist. I've got interested in... Well, strictly speaking, I'm not really interested in artificial life. I'm interested in artificial intelligence. It's just that I take an A-life approach to it. And I got interested in it by mistake when I was about 19. I trained as a primary school teacher, elementary school teacher, and... um, but I was really, really crap at it, and about the same time discovered computers, and it was that combination of computers and children's minds developing that, that got me interested. Basically, I turned out to be much, deep, much better at teaching computers to learn things than I was teaching kids. So in terms of your childhood and what led you towards becoming a teacher, are there things in your childhood that lent themselves towards you developing artificial life and artificial intelligence? I think probably my childhood mostly interested in me, interested me in dynamics. There was no such such subject in those days, not complex dynamics. But as I worked my way through secondary school, um, I was a really lousy student and bottom of the class half the time. But I was really lucky because I had a succession of science teachers who would lock me in the preparation rooms at lunchtime and let me play with stuff and probably to keep me out of trouble, I'm not sure. So I started in physics and worked my way up through chemistry and eventually to biology and taught myself all my science. And I, su- I suppose the, the constant theme through all this was dynamics, the way things interact with each other, feedback loops and self-organization and stuff. And, um, of course, when you start studying physics, it's all pretty elemental and simple. And chemistry is rather more rich and complex. But biology is just astoundingly complex and wonderful. And I got really absorbed and interested and excited in biology, uh, the way basic chemical reactions can bootstrap themselves into complex and interesting organisms like you and me. So I guess school is what got me interested in self-organization. And one of the most exciting self-organizing systems in in the universe that I know of is the human mind. And that was probably what interested me in psychology. Although I actually went into teaching because that's what my dad did and most of us follow our fathers. It turned out to be a mistake in the end because I was just too shy. But I was really interested in children's minds and how they develop and how they grow from this grey mush into such sophisticated machines. And, and the, the kinds of stuff I'd taught myself in the science prep rooms um, was a good kind of platform for that. And as soon as I discovered computers, then the two just married together really nicely and I didn't have to teach anymore. So you've touched on a number of themes associated with your work already, but an aspect that you haven't mentioned is to do with the intimacy that one has with the the artificial life creature. As a child, did you have pets? Did you have interactions with animals that led you towards that? Um, No, oddly. We had pets in the family, but I never really paid much attention to them. I grew up in the country on the edge of a small town and uh, went to school in in a tiny village, so I was kind of used to streams and fields and hills and they tended to be full of animals but I never really got that interested in real animals 
In fact, I think it was the streams and the hills that interested me most. And again, it was self-organizing systems. It's, you know, the way the river valleys develop, the way waterfalls move up the river and all that kind of stuff. It was finding those patterns in nature that I was interested in as a kid. Animals, I think, were just too smelly and too complicated. But you moved somewhere from chemical reactions and flows and things into psychology. So can we talk a little bit about your, your linking of biology and chemistry in, in that regard? Well, it, it kind of went in a loop through computers. I started out training as a teacher and I realised I was no good at it, uh, but I was really interested in the way children's minds organise. And about the same time, this was 1977, 78, I got interested in computers because I crashed, I crashed the physics department computer in my college and um, was really fascinated by what it meant to crash a computer. What, what kind of a machine was this? I'd never come across computers before. And I started trying to write a program to study gestures. I was doing some work on gestures, uh, which got me into computers and then finally got the chance to buy one using my girlfriend's life savings. And um, that was the point I realized that these are just such beautiful machines and you could teach them to learn things. So, so the first program I ever wrote that actually worked on the computer was uh, to play drafts, um, checkers. And it learned, learned how to play checkers and get better and stuff. So that was the point where I started to realize that computers were interesting devices because they could learn things and do what children did. But then I found a book on artificial intelligence in the college library and I read it from cover to cover and realized I disagreed with every single word in it. It was a a book about robots and, you know, Shaky the Robot and, and all those classical AI experiments and research. And it was telling us how you could write algorithms to be smart. And none of it seemed to make much sense to me. It seemed to be the wrong way to go about things. Well, for a start, all these people were writing algorithms to do intelligent things. And obviously they had to tell the computer how to do this intelligent thing. Well... If you tell somebody how to do something, they're not being intelligent, are they? They're just following instructions. So it didn't seem to make much sense to me. And yet we know of a machine that can do real intelligent things, and that's the brain. Nobody seems to be paying much attention to the brain. So that was the point where I started to get back into biology again, when I realized that the only way to get really interested in, in artificial intelligence was to look at biological systems and study how the brain works. And at the time, of course, I thought people actually knew how the brain worked. <laughs> Uh, that turned out to be a bit of a mistake. But so, so that's, that's the kind of trajectory I took from, from children through computers, through disenchantment with AI, through to biological computing in the space of about a week. <laughs> now, in, in context, contemporary computing is very different to computing in the late 70s. And similarly, well, one would hope AI had evolved more, but perhaps not. Can you give some description to what computing and AI and these kind of things was really like in 1978, 1979? Pretty primitive, although in, in most respects nothing much has changed. Um, we're talking about very... I mean, people have never known how to solve the problems of AI, and um, so people have taken various different paths through the problem. And in those days, the basic assumption in those days seemed to be that because human beings who can play chess very well are very intelligent. If you wanted to make an intelligent machine, it had to play chess very well. They couldn't see that real intelligence is all about being able to stand upright and not fall over, or being able to recognize your mother or, or pick something up and manipulate it. Those are, those are the really hard problems. But in those days, AI was focused on what they thought were the hard problems, which was intellectual pursuits like chess playing and uh, finding oil reserves and that kind of stuff. So most of the approaches in 
those days were based on things like expert systems. So complex sequences of rules written in some nasty little language like Prologue, trying to drill down and down through knowledge until you ended up with a system that could reason. None of it worked very well. There was also some attempt to mimic the behavior of the brain. And so connectionism was fairly active in the late 70s using neural networks. But there was a bit of a hoo-ha about connectionism that kind of killed the field for a long time. And in any case, the neural networks that people were using in those days didn't actually bear much resemblance to the brain at all. They were very stylized mathematical devices. So it was all very macho, top-down, control-freaky kind of ways of solving problems. You know, central commands and control mechanisms and, uh, you know, how uh, 2001 was the, the epitome of what everyone was trying to achieve in those days. Uh, since then, everything's turned upside down and now everything's much more bottom-up and distributed and intelligence is seen in a completely different way now. Taking your ideas from 1979, and we've, we described briefly the nature of computers back then, if we were to do some kind of strange time travel experiment and take the young Steve Grand into contemporary computing, what direction do you think you would take with regards to these kind of problems? I don't know that computing was what limited me personally in those days. So having big, fast machines and modern languages probably would have frightened me to death, but, but um, not actually changed very much about the way I think. Because, well, for example, in, in those days, there wasn't much in the way of object orientation. Computers were seen as procedural machines following instructions one thing after another, and that was the model for, for programming, and that was the model for AI that thought was conceived of as, as these streams of instructions, you know, doing one step after another, planning and that kind of thing. But actually, I didn't work that way at all, and even though I used to write machine code programs that executed in, you know, less than a K of memory, um, I still used to write object-oriented programs because I always had this strange view of the computer as, as more of a medium than a processing device. And so I used to try to turn the computer into a virtual machine that was very different from a computer, much more like a brain, say, or like a virtual world, where you've got lots of objects that move around in space and interact with each other. So I was taking that attitude to computing in the 70s, when it wasn't fashionable, mostly because I was ignorant of the proper attitude. And if I was just given a modern computer now, I guess I'd freak out at the thought that it's got a million times more memory than the ones I was used to, and I wouldn't know what to do with it. The sad thing is, in those days, I used to write chess-playing programs in a K, and now I couldn't write one in 10 megabytes. <laughs> I think I've got lazy in my old age. Now, the intertwining between ideas of life and chemistry and biology and intelligence and software make it quite difficult to actually formulate a, an interview based on these ideas. But can you kind of distill your contemporary view about how all these things link together? Well, to me, they're all the same thing. This, is, this probably doesn't help you at all because it just makes it even more confusing and messy. But I, I tend to be a jack-of-all-trades and people tend to describe me as if I was an expert on lots of different things, but actually I'm not. There's only one thing I'm good at, and that's dynamics. But all of those things are different instantiations of the same principles. And so I'm, personally, I'm, I'm interested in and, and reasonably good at dealing with negative feedback loops and positive feedback loops and leaky integrators and oscillators and a whole bunch of elemental units that you find in chemistry, you find in biochemistry, you find in neural structures, you find in computing. So, so they're all the same subject as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I suppose if you go back to the 50s when cybernetics was popular before it got 
sort of ruined and, and brushed under the carpet by all the disciplines it replaced. Cybernetics was that kind of a general view of, of how things interact with each other. And it unified chemistry and biology and informatics and electronics. And so basically I'm a cyberneticist. As far as I'm concerned, they're all the same subject. So if we can explore this perhaps chronologically from 1979 through to the early 90s, what were you developing? What were you tinkering with over that period? <laughs> My son, I suppose. In, uh, in 1981, we had a child and my wife had a good teaching job and I had a really lousy job in a factory so I gave up my job and brought him up and so part of my day, most of my day, was spent running around cleaning sick off the floor and, and putting things back in cupboards and learning about how a real brain develops and then the rest of my day was spent sitting at a computer desperately trying to write educational software which is what I was trying to make a living out of at the time failing miserably but at the same time experimenting with various approaches to, to understanding how the brain might work or how life works so I used to write simulations of evolving systems and neural networks and stuff so from starting in, in the, the early 80s I was, I was part-time mother part-time educational programmer spare time a life freak which is what seven years before artificial life as a term was coined and I just gradually got better at it I, I tinkered with various various different things so I was very interested in virtual worlds and simulation as a concept and one of the things I did for educational software was I wrote a, an adventure generating engine or an adventure engine called Microcosm which was supposed to allow children to go and visit places and meet people that they otherwise couldn't meet so for example I created a village in the Valley of the Kings in ancient Egypt a little boy and the people in the town around him and kids could go and and um, chat with this boy and ask him to visit various places and talk to, to them about what he knew and stuff. So it was a kind of free-form adventure system. And that was very interesting. I, I really enjoyed doing that and I was quite proud of it. Again, I, I took a rather strange approach to it. Most adventure games in those days were quite algorithmic and the languages that people wrote to, to compile them were algorithms. But I created a thing that was what you might call a loosely coupled rule base that used what I now know is called Stigmergy to connect things together. So instead of writing algorithms, lists of instructions and repeats and do-untils and stuff, the whole system was just a bunch of if-then statements. And the idea was that the state of the environment would trigger one of these rules, which would change the behavior of the system in some way, and that would change the environment. And because the environment was now in a new state, it would trigger another rule somewhere else in the database. And this turned out to be a really robust and powerful system. It, it was much more adaptable than most algorithmic languages at the time. For example, people could come in halfway through a plot and the plot would still carry on properly. It would patch itself up. And I'm telling you this because um, it's kind of relevant to artificial life because what I sort of unwittingly discovered is the way that insects work, which is by leaving little patterns of their behavior in the environment and then picking up the signals from the environment to change the patterns of behavior. So you get this loop of environment behavior, environment behavior. Uh, that's called stigmergy. Uh, so I was using artificial life techniques, even though I didn't know there were artificial life techniques in my educational software. So that's right that decade I was earning nothing writing these silly games and things for people and then eventually the educational software company I worked for split in two and half of it became a, became a games company and that's when I started to have some success at these things. So in terms of your reading, in terms of the people that you were communicating with through this kind of stage where you were developing this skill set, was it all done in isolation or were you reading particular books or talking with people? No, it was all done in 
isolation because well, I read one book on AI, the, the one I told you about in college, and uh, I was so so fed up with it that I decided never to read another one. And I've more or less held to that promise ever since. But in any case, you know, I was just this young guy with a baby stuck at home all day. There was no internet in those days. So I was pretty isolated from the world. I didn't know any scientists until 1996. That was the first contact I had with the scientific community. So it was just me, my son, my wife, and experimenting. To characterise this period of time, you're describing a, a great degree of playful freedom. Is this something that has kind of continued on through your professional life since, or is this kind of a, a golden period in your own thinking? <laughs> it's a kind of a brass period in my thinking. It, it's, it's funny you should say playful freedom, because it was, and in retrospect, I should have treated it like that, but to me it was clutching its straws and, and sheer desperation, because we didn't have a huge amount of money coming in, and babies were expensive, and I was kind of desperately trying to find a career and make some progress after my career as a teacher had been such a dismal disaster. So, although in principle I was sitting back enjoying myself doing all these experiments, I actually felt quite frantic about it, like I was wasting my time, or, or like I was hoping I could get somewhere with all this, and, and that's Actually, somebody might actually listen to me for once. Since that point, I've carried on taking life more or less the same way, and it's been just about as frantic ever since. <laughs> so I've never really felt playful about it, never very relaxed. It's always been, oh my God, oh my God, how am I going to make any money, kind of thing. Well, I think you're speaking to a majority of the artificial life developers that listen to this podcast, so <laughs> it, it's a shared theme, Steve, let's just put it back. Yeah, I, I, I realise now that I wasn't alone. <laughs> it's a very curious thing that many of us did have this experience of isolated development for a number of years. Can you talk a little bit about meeting like-minded folk? What was that like when it happened? The first time I had any kind of connection with, with science frightened me stupid. This, this was actually when creatures were in development. We're going to talk about creatures another time. But the people at the company I was working for said, well, we should talk to some scientists about this. There was a lot of money involved obviously being a commercial game and stuff. And uh, everyone was anxious to make sure that I was telling the truth and making sense. So they started getting in touch with scientists to get people to come along and, and validate what I was doing. And I was petrified, absolutely petrified they were going to find me out and <laughs> realize I was just an amateur. But actually, it wasn't like that at all. And uh, the first scientist I ever met was John Dagman at um, Cambridge, who's the guy who did all the work on retinal identification, that kind of stuff. And he was very nice, and he came over and talked to me and went away again. And then um, a chap called Dave Cliff from Sussex came up, and he was actually being paid by Warner Brothers to check me out. So I turned up in a room to meet Dave with uh, a roll of wallpaper with the plans for creatures on it and the neural networks and the design of the biochemical system and so on. And uh, in great trepidation, tried to explain all this to Dave. And he loved it, and he thought I was on the right track and, and um, became extremely supportive and helpful and we published my first paper together and so I, I suddenly discovered that the scientific community was really welcoming and didn't laugh at me at all and I just wish I'd known that 20 years earlier. Do you think that's indicative of the kind of UK academic community or do you think the same is the case internationally? It, it's the same internationally. I've, I've been to European and American conferences and spoken at them and it's pretty much the same environment I think. It's quite a small community. I mean, there, there are several sub-communities in artificial life and AI and branches thereof and biochemistry and so on, other things that I'm involved in. So they're quite a small bunch of people and they all tend to know each other and the culture tends to stabilise uh, internationally because they're the same people at every conference. But 
think there are some, some national differences. In, in the UK, we're rather proud of being useless at things. The, the idea of, of you know, the tin pot inventors in their garage tinkering with stuff is actually a source of national pride here. And being a bit eccentric is almost compulsory. So I think the, the, the UK is probably a good place to be welcomed into, into science for the first time because uh, you, know, you don't have to conform too much and the pressures aren't that high. But mostly it's, it's much the same everywhere I've been in the world. You've touched on this briefly, but prior to the actual creature's development, which we'll discuss in another interview, you did have some descriptions in software that related primarily to chemical processes. And I think this was fascinating, my kind of early reading of your work, that this was a central theme that came prior to creatures. Can you discuss where that came from? I'm not sure what you're referring to, actually. I can't the idea it. that the kind of gated and oscillating processes that can be described in software to represent chemical processes. That's the theme of my life. That's how I look at the world generally and always have ever since I was a child. I think you know, people, there are different kinds of brain and we all think we're human beings, but actually each of us thinks in very different ways. And some people think in words all the time. Some people think in photographic-like pictures. Some people think in, in movement. And I think in dynamics. Everything I visualize in the world is a bunch of feedback loops. That's what I see in my head when I think about things, about how things interact. So I guess all my life I've been... <laughs> Because I have a lousy memory, you see. I don't, don't remember things very well. So I always spend my time trying to work out the smallest amount of stuff I need to know in order to work everything out so that I don't have too much to remember. And if I don't remember any facts, then I have to work them out from scratch all the time. So I'm always looking for the kind of elemental building blocks of the universe and oscillators and integrators and, and habituation and, and all these sort of dynamical elemental building blocks that what turn up everywhere. And chemistry is a, a kind of perfect, pure Lego set for thinking about dynamics. You know, almost everything that happens in the universe happens in one form or another in chemistry and in particular in biochemistry where you get protein-protein interactions and enzyme interactions and that kind of stuff chemistry is, is kind of the epitome of, of pure dynamics and you find all these oscillators and stuff so I've always found that kind of thing fascinating and those concepts aren't actually inherent in computing oddly enough electronics covers them. Electronics actually has always interested me more than chemistry. My father was an electronic engineer and he taught me electronics when I was 11 and, and I was always fascinated by the fact that you could make oscillators that amplified and amplifiers that oscillated and radio sets that would retune themselves as you walked around the room and that kind of stuff. So um, electronics has always been the kind of model in my head. But computers aren't like that. they kind of specially designed to take all the fun out of electronics. So they are sharp step change things, everything is one or naught, things either are or aren't, and quite unlike radios and other analogue devices, chemistry and stuff. So as soon as I got into computing, of course, I just naturally did what I'm used to, which was to try to turn that digital world back into an analogue one and try to turn computer concepts like for next loops and if-then statements into dynamical building blocks like oscillators and integrators. So it's been a theme of all my programming work is to try to stop being a programmer as soon as possible and start becoming a biologist or a chemist. Now moving on the theme from oscillators and these kind of concepts, you've discussed briefly psychology You've made reference to it being multidimensional. How do you move from oscillators and gates and things like that into psychology? I wish I knew. <laughs> I mean, if I knew an exact answer to that, then I'd solved a really big pro problem, which is how the brain works, because that's exactly what happens. You start off with this 
mush of lipid membranes enclosing proteins and little enzymes and ionic waves passing over the surfaces of cells and stuff and out of the result comes a human being and a mind with its own laws and characteristics and, and trying to marry the laws of chemistry with the laws of psychology is what it's all about for me and I honestly don't know what the answer is yet I mean I'm still working on it and I'm still trying to understand what the engineering principles of the brain are but it's fair to say that you know chemistry has laws biology has laws and psychology has laws and the, the way the mind works is very different from the way you would describe the brain but the laws of one must translate into the laws of the other in some form you know a mind is an emergent construct created by brains so that's what i'm actively working on is trying to, to bridge that gap. I guess you've described psychology as being multidimensional and multifaceted, yet part of very simple components. But you also talk through your history of giving presentations on artificial intelligence in particular about destroying these kind of paradigms. Is it just a matter that there needs to be a new paradigm to be created, or should we really discard everything that's been done to date in artificial intelligence? I think everything we've done to date in artificial intelligence has been discarded in the sense that none of, none of it works. You know, we've spent 50 years trying to make intelligent systems and pretty much failed miserably. So we now know thousands of ways not to do it. And the whole exercise, as far as I can see, is, is one of gradually discarding more and more useless models. And eventually, I hope, will happen on one that works. But as far as paradigms are concerned, the paradigm in the 70s was very top-down. I mean, that would be the characteristic of it, that it was all about centralized control. It was a kind of dictatorship model, if you think about it economically or politically. And in those days, there was assumed to be a more or less direct correspondence between computing and the mind. But there was no point worrying about the brain. The mind was a lawful system. We could figure out what the laws of the mind are and reproduce them in software, and that's the problem solved. That's what Alan Turing expected to have happened by the year 2000, which, of course, was the, the year in which computers couldn't even count and add up 1999 plus one and end up with 2000. So we kind of let him down. Because it doesn't work, it doesn't make any sense, in fact. And then in the 80s, artificial life started to happen, and there was a paradigm shift and a complete upheaval, really. Everything turned upside down, and everything became bottom-up. And intelligence was deemed to arise from distributed processes or distributed objects interacting with each other, and everything was supposed to emerge from the bottom-up. And that was the kind of paradigm that I was working on in the 70s and early 80s, and it became fashionable in the 90s. But actually, I think neither paradigm is right. And what we need now is another paradigm, which actually encompasses both of those ideas, top down and bottom up, but thinks about them in the right way. It's, it's rather difficult to explain. If I knew how to put this in words, then I'd have solved the problem. But the short answer is, yeah, I think we need a, a brand new paradigm. We need a revelation. So one of the problems I have when I'm sort of being a public person and, and journalists ask me questions and things, they're always asking me, when are we going to do this? When are we going to solve this problem? When are we going to make intelligent machines and I always say I have no idea it could be tomorrow it could be in a thousand years time and that's because the, the reason they ask me the question is because they think science works incrementally that we are always on the path towards the solution and we gradually move forward along that path step by step as we solve all the individual problems and some science does work that way but AI doesn't the truth is that we haven't the faintest clue how to solve the problem as far as I can see and we need a breakthrough and the trouble with breakthroughs of course is you don't know when they're going to arrive you can't say that we're seven-eighths of the way towards a breakthrough because it's just going to come out of the blue as a shock. So I think what we're in is 
one of those sort of waiting games now where somebody somewhere is going to have a brilliant idea and look at the problem in a new way and then everyone's going to say, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if that applies to my work and it'll all suddenly start to come together. So I think paradigm shifts are what's needed, not, not more of the same. Now, you've described yourself as being interested in artificial intelligence through artificial life methods. We've already discussed what you feel with regards to contemporary artificial intelligence. Do you feel the same way with regards to artificial life in terms of the need to discard all previous ideas and start afresh? No, I don't think so. I think artificial life is... I mean, artificial life in its purest form is a toolkit rather than a paradigm or a kind of political agenda or a, a theory. It's just the use of computer simulation in order to try to understand the principles of life. And that was a, a revolution uh, when it happened because people, generally speaking, haven't thought that way. They, they didn't think of using computers as tools to think with. They only used them as number crunching devices. And in particular, they didn't think of synthesis as being a proper approach to science. And that's still very true in biology. You talk to biologists and they, more often than not, poo-poo synthesis. They think their job is reductionist analysis. The job is to work out how it's done by taking things to pieces. And what um, artificial life did, and particularly Chris Langton when he started the field in 1987, was it, the first day of life conference, was say, hey guys, you know, life's a bit complicated. How about we start using computers to try building the stuff instead of trying to take all these complex organisms to pieces and see if we can work out what the basic principles at work are. And I think that's an extremely valid approach, that if you can build something, you understand it. You might not be able to write down a theory of it or take a real thing to pieces and explain what all the parts do, but if you can make it work from first principles, then you genuinely understand it in a way that reductionist science often doesn't. So that, that is a great principle and should be applied more widely in science, and it isn't yet. The only thing that's changed recently is that biology is now starting to think like artificial life. You know, the latest developments in synthetic cells and, and the work on, on basic biochemistry of cells is all about using synthesis to try to understand life by actually chemically synthesizing pathways and putting together genes and trying to create cells and stuff. So, so the A-life approach is starting to take hold in biology, I think. But it's a great paradigm and I, I see no reason to change it, apart from when it comes to intelligence, where it's perhaps just a bit too bottom-up to my liking. Well, in researching this interview, I found a, a paper that you wrote in frustration in 1998 saying that artificial life had died. The theme through that was that it had become too kind of chasing its own tail. It was trying to emulate artificial intelligence in some regard. What needs to be injected into artificial life in order to maintain that vibrancy? Ah, now that's a very good question. I don't remember writing the paper, so I've, I've no idea what I said, and I'll probably contradict myself. <laughs> but I think the thing about artificial life was that it's very recent. You know, it's a pretty new idea, and in its first generation, people like Chris Langton and, and Tom Ray and, and Larry Yeager and so on were doing exciting stuff. They didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know how to do it. It was all experimental and fresh and thrilling and looked very promising. But it started to fulfill some of that promise, which is always a bad thing for a field to do because then it starts generating students. And so these first generation A-lifers started bringing up students who then started bringing up their students and so on. And what happens then is that instead of people inventing wisdom, they receive it. And so I think around the late 90s, A-life had gone into its second and third generation and had become an established field where the wisdom was received and people thought that this 
was how you do it. And it had lost all that experimental, free-form, free-thinking, West Coast, freaky attitude that kept it alive and fresh. And so I was pretty disappointed with uh, life in those days. And I think it may well be true to say that it's died as a science. There's not that many people who would profess to be professional A-lifers these days. And it hasn't really made much in the way of progress in, the, in recent years. But I'm not surprised. I mean, that's just the way things happen. There are also some nastier influences that work in, in new sciences. And I mean, if you look at cybernetics, for instance, and back in the 40s, cybernetics started to happen. Turing was, was one of the early cyberneticists. And so it was a great science because it was one of those synthesized sciences that brings together a whole bunch of different disparate fields and finds some, find something unified between them. So suddenly electronics and radio and communications and robotics and biology and psychology were all becoming unified and people were finding common themes, which was very exciting. And then suddenly it died. In the space of a few years, it more or less completely was wiped out. And partly I think it was because it went through that generation thing where the wisdom became received and the science, the, the, the freshness was lost and it just became information theory. And that in itself was partly due to the fact that it became mathematized, that the mathematicians took over and kicked the biologists out and started writing equations. And so cybernetics became information theory, which is an extremely dull subject. And there was also a kind of backlash from the sciences that were being usurped. And so, so whereas in the late 40s and early 50s, people were jumping on the cybernetics bandwagon and trying to, you know, biologists were talking to chemists, talking to electronics people. Suddenly people realized that their careers were being undermined and they kind of stole it back again. And the field just fragmented and vaporized. And I think that artificial life is a similar kind of thing. Certainly complex dynamics as a science is a, is a similar kind of thing. It unifies a lot of ideas, and that threatens people and, and destabilizes the academic system. And people soon sweep it all under the carpet and, and swamp it and wipe it out. And I think that, to a large extent, is what's happened over the last decade in A-Life, from, from my perspective anyway. From my perspective, what fascinates me about artificial life is, firstly, as, as you've characterized what you're describing as the death of artificial life as an emergent academic-funded commercial discipline. But what's fascinating and what has really regenerated this new biota is the idea that there were a group of hobbyists that did what you did in the late 70s and early 80s, but were doing this in the kind of early 90s to late 90s, who percolated away and are now emerging above some level where they're now talking in podcasts and things like that. The ability for these hobbyists to engage with academia seems to be one of the kind of lingering issues. And you were very successful in engaging in academics in, as you say, the, the, the mid-90s. For folks that are maybe hobbyist artificial life developers currently, how do you think artificial life will, will re-emerge as a respected discipline? Emerging and respected are not necessarily the same thing. You, you, I, I completely agree, you're right, that, that academia has more or less driven a life underground and it's re-emerged in hobbyists again. And, and that's perhaps the way it should be. It was a hobby. It was the fusion of a bunch of personal passions that created the field in the first place. Uh, then it became an established discipline and, and with you know grants and, and departments and students to worry about and, and it kind of got stolen by the academic community and smothered and now it's starting to come back again as a, as a an emergent construct in its own right and uh, amongst hobbyists and that's a good thing now whether that can ever be a respected discipline probably depends on whether we change the way we respect things because i think it'll be a mistake to try to 
formalise it again and try and play the academic game. I mean, I don't write papers, for instance. I've, I've only written three or four papers, and those are only to help people out. I didn't want to write them because the the whole academic publication system is designed for stopping progress, not starting it. And that was one of the things that killed their life in the first place. So it just became paper publishing field. So we don't want to play that game again, I don't think. It seems to me that the, the, the whole point of artificial life is that synthesis is valuable in its own right, and therefore the proof of the pudding is in the eating, that, that it's not so much the theories as the things we make that demonstrate our success. So it ought to stay out of the academy in many ways, I think. A-Life should demonstrate its value by making things, and particularly where, where it impacts on artificial intelligence. You know, if we can actually come up with the goods and produce intelligent systems that excite and surprise academics, then just their very existence is enough. We don't need to write theories. We don't need to get grants or, or publish papers. And it's hobbyists who are going to make things, because that's what we do, academics don't have time for making things, they're too busy writing papers and going to conferences. <laughs> so it probably should stay outside the walls of academe and flourish there. And I urge people to go out and build stuff and, you know, come up with new ideas. There's no point building more of the same. We need new ideas, but, but the best way to show off those ideas is to make things. Well, I hate to conclude this conversation here, Steve, but I think that's the perfect sabre-rattling to, to conclude <laughs> the, the first conversation, but there will be more. And I thank you very much for the opportunity to chat with you today and, and look forward to having the chance to chat with you in the future. Right, yeah, Tom. Thank you.